Get ready for an all-new season of 430 Movie debuting this October with some exciting new theme weeks curated by your favorite 430 Movie hosts. Yes, the 430 Movie is back, and we hope you will be too. Hey, this is Mark Altman, one half of the Inglorious Trexperts, and season two begins this month on the Electric Surge Network. Keep boldly going as we return to the airwaves with airwaves? I don't know. It's not really airwaves, is it? It's it's like, what is streaming? It's like zeros and ones, right, Darren? We return to the Wi-Fi. We return to the Wi-Fi wherever you listen to podcasts. So join the Inglorious Trexperts for an all-new season of Inglorious Trexperts. Hey, if you're a Star Wars fan, check out the new Star Wars podcast, The Rebel and the Rogue, every Tuesday on the Electric Surge Network, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. As always, I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I am excited to continue <laughs> on with night two of our two-part discussion on Return of the Thing. And joining us again is the writer of Return of the Thing, Mr. David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, Mc- sorry. Yeah, it's okay. The fourth it's, name's it's new. It's, it's, it's a lot. He's trying to trick us all. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's call you DLJM. Um, so yeah, where we left off, uh, we were just finished. So again, I mean, for people, it's maybe been a couple weeks since you listened to the last episode. This was a two-part sequel to The Thing that was going to be a miniseries on the Sci-Fi Channel. Channel? Network? Channel, right? And I think this was before their name change. It was just, it was, yeah, it was yes, sci-fi it was in the classic way. Exactly. Now it's S Y F Y. Right. Yeah. Um, That's how old this is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And last we left the uh, unfortunate town of Christmas, New Mexico, uh, Lukanov and the military had just shown up and it was, everyone's basically gone. It's just kind of an empty town. I think there's like probably dead bodies and stuff lying around, blood smears on the ground. Right. Knows. I guess that's something we didn't ask last time. How gory were you guys? Because the script's yeah. very gory. Was sci-fi just 100% behind that? or? I mean, we never got to the point of having that discussion, but my sort of approach always is like go to 11 because you'll probably wind up around 9. Yeah. Like if I mm. aim for 9, I'll get 7. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. shoot for the, you know, get as much as you can get, and then hopefully you can have a higher gore compromise level. Right. Do the William Freakin cruising thing. Just go out of control <laughs> with the extra. <laughs> well, well, quick question for me was uh, uh, the the dates between the drafts are like six months apart. Was, uh, was this continuously being written, or did you have time off between the first and second draft? It, it was continuously being written. Like, I think the... Um, I did another, probably while I was doing night two, rewriting night one, and then another rewrite on night two. And night night two was harder. Night two, like night two, took longer and was was just harder to bring together. Like Frank actually helped a lot out with the writing on that one because Frank Darabont, yeah, I'm saying yes, because he was he was producing the movie and and or the show, um, and 
like night one was so much fun to write because it was all about just like setups, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and sort of, you know, building out the world and building out those characters. And then night two was all about paying off. And mm -hmm. it, it was, it was a lot. It, I mean, I, I mean, my first draft of that script was probably close to 200 pages. It was just, it was a monster. Um, and so it was just like, I mean, the first half, it was like really fun. I was just like juggling all these balls and I felt really clever. And then it the, came to night two and I had to catch all of them. And I was like, oh my God, help me because yeah. I, I've got too many balls. Um, and so I, it was just, it was, it was a lot of work hacking that into what it wound up being. Yeah, you said Frank Darabont was producing. I was always curious: was he going to direct, or or is it was it only strictly producing? I I think he. You'd have to ask him, but I think he was producing with an eye to directing it, because um, he like later on would go on and do the the Walking Dead pilot and and develop that. I think this was this was sort of would have been one of his first TV producing and directing thing because he he was he was and still is just very passionate about the project and and a huge fan of the thing so i think mm -hmm. i think it had had it come together he might not have been able to resist yeah gotcha. hey, was he on did you guys kind of come on at the same time yeah well yeah i that's actually really how i got the job was because like i it was an open writing assignment um but i was like i'm not going to get this job by myself and so i went to frank and was like they're making the thing we could do the sequel to the thing. I sort of pitched him my take on it, and and he came on. He was like came on as a producer at that point. I brought him with me, yeah, um, to sort of get it made. Well, then you ended up working on The Walking Dead as well. Yeah, was that when he was on it or mm -hmm. after he'd left? Yeah, no, I, I, that's that's how that happened. Was because of sort of our experience working together on this, and specifically like Night Two, which was more of a collaboration. Um, he brought me on in season two of The Walking Dead to to be in the room on that. Oh wow, nice! How was that show to work on? <laughs> it was a blast. Yeah, I loved it. I think the, the, our first day on season two, um, in the writers' room, AMC sent us uh, a big basket of milk and cookies. And I was like, okay, my job <laughs> is to sit around talking about zombie comic books and eating milk, milk and, and cookies, cookies because I'm eight. Yeah. And this is the most it's amazing thing ever. Interesting choice on AMC's part. Um, oh, wait, and Steve, you had something else you wanted to bring up from oh, yeah. Night One script. Yeah, from Night Night One script, they go on board, they do a flashback where the Russians go on board the spaceship, the one that's crashed, and John Carpenter's the thing. And we get a, uh, as the camera moves over, we see a strange crab-like limb and a huge insectoid head. It's an alien corpse. All that's left is a hollow exoskeleton withered and decomposed. So pretty much as Joshua is bringing up, like, so you do a scene in, at the end of night one where there was an alien that took over the other alien. And so... I thought it was interesting that you that's where the crab like limbs come from. Exactly. I mean part of the I mean this is like deeper into like the mythology than than is necessary for for anything. Mm -hmm. Um but you know to to sort of make the creature make sense to me it was like it doesn't really if it's it, all it does is copy. So there can't really it doesn't really have itself yeah right all it is is imitation so everything you saw in that first movie has to have been an imitation of something else mm -hmm. um 
And then there was just sort of the the question of like what happened on that ship. You know, you have that one sh- shot of it sort of wobbling as it's you know headed towards Earth and crashing, um, and just it it feel, felt weird to me. I couldn't ever picture like the thing in its sort of natural state, like at a steering wheel in a spaceship ship, like flying <laughs> yeah. someplace. It was weird. I, I couldn't, it didn't make any sense to me. Um, and the, the Carpenter never says what happened on the ship. It just seemed, w- you know, was way more interesting to like have it, it had a, was it more interesting to have it have a mechanical breakdown and it crashed or mm-hmm. there's another thing movie taking yeah. place on this flying saucer. A whole I, other I kind of want to see that movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, because I, I dug that because it was like, yeah, because you don't know which which alien it could be when it's imitated, you know, all these limbs. And so it could be a crab-like, it could be the other alien. No, I, it was just something I really enjoyed when I was reading them on the spaceship and imagining it and just really wishing I could have seen that scene of them <laughs> investigating the, the, like the space jockey sequence from right. Alien. Yeah. But in Antarctica, I thought it was a, a great sequence and you're... It's pretty much towards the end of the first night, so. Well, and then we're touching on, which becomes more relevant by the end of the episode, um, but the idea that you're getting into kind of the mechanics of how the thing works and the idea that even, that when it's kind of like shocked, uh, it starts kind of cycling back through the like in almost like a, an order of this link of chain of imitations it's been doing, which I thought was cool. Yeah. Um, but getting into this story, when we begin, uh, we pair up, which I was fine, our two favorite characters, Little Bear and Gates, the <laughs> convict, become a duo and have sort of a big, speaking of carpenters, kind of like a they live level throw down endless yes. brawl where yes. they're just like beating the crap out of each other in Little Bear's home um, before finally deciding to team up and go after the coyote together. Um, but there is a great sequence um, where, I'm sorry, I, I just there's a sequence before they team up and go after the coyote, uh, an injured man comes to the house. And this is the scene that I was reading this and I swear to God, I, I shot up out of my chair. Um, the guy is shot, and Gates is telling him, "Yo, he's he's a thing. Don't go near him." And Little Bear's like, "No, nah, no, nah, I'm gonna go take care of him. I don't believe you." And then he looks. Okay, uh, he wipes the wound, clearing the blood. The the Lewis is the guy who's shot. Cringes in pain. Little Bear leans in a little closer. Suddenly, inside the bullet hole, a yellow coyote's eye opens and stares at him. (laughs) Stunned, little bear jerks and looks at Lewis's face, and his face is grinning. That sequence, like, blew my mind. I did not expect that. I did not see that coming. And I'm reading a script, and this is, like, within the first 10 pages. Well, then you also have, you even call out, there's a part where Gates yanks open the door, and, and you have in parentheses, in total homage to the 1951 Howard Hawks film, Right. Uh, the Louis Luis, are you saying that thing is right there, filling the doorway with a horrific shriek and flailing limbs? Um, so, look, you're taking it all the way back. Right. I mean, you even have later. I, I assume this was on purpose. You have a sh- soldier ask, "Who goes there?" Which oh, yeah. was the name of the John W. <laughs> Campbell short story that the thing's even based yeah. on. Um, God. Yeah. Th- just looking at a bullet hole and seeing a coyote's <laughs> eyeball and, come oh, on. It's so good. Uh, I mean. <laughs> It would have been interesting if this got made where the number of effects shots you were allowed to have because yeah. you definitely go for broke. <laughs> we we did. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, it's just too much fun. Like that, 
that boating creature is just so bizarre. Like there's so much you can do with it. It was just a great sandbox to just come up with the most twisted, delirious stuff you can. And you did, which is great. <laughs> you know, it's like, like I was saying uh, two weeks ago, it's like this really is what Aliens was to Alien because you take it and you and you go to 11 with it versus, you know, I, I want to talk bad about other things, but, you know, I, I kind of wish, you know, I, I don't know if it's the people who made the prequels fault because, you know, I think they were just, they had to do what they had to do, but I just... Man, it, it just it kills me when I read this to see where it could have went. Well, you know? and we discussed a little last time. It was like the the remake, prequel, whatever you really call requel, right. yeah. <laughs> did had the problem that they were just doing the first movie mm-hmm. again. Whereas we said last time, you kind of got to have the fun of doing it both ways. We were able to recycle all the bits, mm-hmm. but because you have so many minutes, you need to fill. Even if you did, even if you had wanted to just do a repeat of the first one, it's like the story has to move in a whole other different directions. Yeah, now I mean, we definitely wanted to like try and, and and move the story forward, and and really like, I mean, the other thing that was, I mean, a lot of talented people working on on that on, on the prequel. Yeah, yeah. And, but I mean, if you look at where horror as a genre was at that time, it was everyone's looking in their libraries. For IP that they can remake, it was like the mm-hmm. it was the era of the horror remake, and and so it was sort of like the natural thing to do if you own that IP to go and and remake it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and then they, and they did attempt to do prosthetics, you know, but well, that's the saddest thing about yeah. it, is that they replaced all the cool practical effects with, I mean, not uncool, but just kind of we've seen it before CG. So yeah, and I mean, I didn't hate the movie, but it you know it it you know. It, after reading this, it bums me out very quickly. When you said went. Nicotero was working on the effects for this, do you, I mean, probably too early for you to know, but do you know what the breakdown was going to be of practical versus digital? Or? No, no. I mean, and it was it was just, it was early days. It was everybody yeah. was just sort of talking and brainstorming everybody because we were all fans and just getting excited to be able to play in that universe, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, I, I, the idea was to hopefully do practical with like CGI enhancements yeah you know mm-hmm. so you, you you're you're because I, I feel like that can be really effective to like have the actual thing there on the set that you're just enhancing and smoothing things over and, and helping absolutely um and this is now so as night two is kind of moving things I, I like that it wasn't just even though it's one continuous story night two does feel like it even goes in a different direction from the first one because the first one's all the kind of different characters reacting in their own independent ways to what's happening and then everyone kind of coming together because now we have where the few survivors still left in uh, Christmas New Mexico get captured by the military and basically put in like a compound and barely told like what's going on and then even they are kind of realizing well they know what the thing is that it imitates people so then they start even turning on each other they're kind mm-hmm. of having their own little microcosm story right of being like what if that guy's the thing right um yeah it was it was sort of t- sort of using the thing to sort of do um was it the the monsters are coming to Maple Street or, yeah. or was it Mulberry Street? Mulberry, I forget. I think. The, the, yeah, the the Twilight Zone. You know, where where you 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 turn this neighborhood of people against each other with this threat from beyond. <laughs> and I like this too. Again, as far as uh, 
being a, I, I like that you're able to go into like expand and add details to the thing mythology without ever really crossing that kind of boundary of was like I didn't need to know any of that right. like why uh, but in this you have Dr. Blackburn um, just to kind of further accentuate the threat just how dangerous the thing is the saying the human body isn't just comprised of cells it's home to millions of microorganisms if someone has a cold when they're infected chances are the thing won't just imitate the person it'll imitate the cold virus too which i love so now it's airborne one sneeze contains millions of bacteria and we have to account for every one of them because a single cell is all it takes to pass the infection on it's noting they've been hunting all the coyotes so you say you men have bagged a dozen coyotes out of how many hundreds and what about all the fleas and ticks that may have been infected and moved on to other animals by now and crows and buzzards and flies i'm just like that's kind of again further painting that just i mean frankly at this point i'm just like earth is already doomed i don't know what what they're gonna do (laughs) you've set up that uh there's no hope now um and let's see here. Oh, there's also a great, going back to Avery, who I said was kind of our Paul Reiser from mm. Aliens, middle management jerk. Uh, there's a great thing where his boss, Avery, what did I say, Pritchard? Pritchard, Pritchard. Yeah, Pritchard. Yeah. I got their name screwed up. Avery's his boss, uh, and Pritchard had like screwed up enough stuff in handling how they approach the plane crash that he's firing him. Uh, and Pritchard, being a jerk, cares more about his own career than saving the planet at this point. Um, and much like in the first one where they find the tor- torn up clothes and the idea that when the thing takes over somebody just kind of can't help bursting out of their clothes. So then Pritchard takes Avery's jacket and basically frames Avery being like, I found out his torn up suit. We have to imprison him. And then which causes this whole chain reaction of... Because people are believing Pritchard, they're wondering if the blood test isn't even effective anymore. And they're wondering if the, the thing has managed to evolve like a virus to fool the blood test, um, which I think is great because we get to have the moment where you're just like, ah, oh, this son of a bitch is like, but then it ends up being true. Right. He's, uh, he's accidentally discovered yeah, the, <laughs> the real thing. Because it's a great thing. moment where like they're going through all this stuff and you're just like hating Pritchard and he's just like fucking over people like left and right. He talks another soldier into helping him escape, basically being like, oh, because they're mm-hmm. going to nuke the area. Right. It's like mm-hmm. the end of Return of the Living Dead. Where, because of his lie of ripping the guy's yeah, clothes. Yeah, so they're like, oh, there's no choice. We yeah. just have to nuke you guys. <laughs> I forgot that that was the order it goes yeah, in so he's like so Haha, i successfully framed avery but then it's his web of lies it's like oh well now we're just gonna get nuked and everyone there's just like well we all have to die for the good of humanity and he's just like shit so he mm-hmm. talks a guy into helping him escape and the soldiers like ends up like shooting people so they can help him escape and then when they're busted he like turns on that guy um and then that and that becomes a thing that soldier is a thing. Yeah. And right. that's what I thought was really interested, interesting was I was wondering why that soldier was killing people. And then it was because, oh, now he knows they're going to nuke the town. So Yeah, so he the, need, the thing needs to get out of there, too. And that's, that's something crazy, too, is that it takes over the soldiers. So now the thing have weapons which is <laughs> it's true it's a little bit like you know? uh, the the later romero zombie movies where mm-hmm. the zombies finally get like machine guns because <laughs> yeah. we have the things using weapons and there's also a great kind of subplot in this one too again kind of taken from uh blair in the first one where they keep finding like humvees that have been stripped of all their parts right and of course mm-hmm. the audience is going to know like oh the thing's building 
a spaceship. Uh, we won't get too far okay. ahead on that, but we just know they're they're building something, right? And you're not sure what or where. Um, when and all the people in the town have vanished. Yes, they, like they, like they're or they're not all accounted for. They do they they find some find some people in the camps, but then a lot of them are just gone. And it's where 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 is everybody gone? What's ever was being built? You know, the, the sort of creating the sort of mystery of of what the thing is up to. Hopefully. Yeah, what's he building in there? Yeah, <laughs> um, and there's also uh, I can't remember if I made a note of this kind of a cool thing where they've got like helicopters using like heat sensors trying to find survivors and things and whatnot, uh, and they kind of can't find everyone. And then I think is if correct again, I can't quite find my note, but I think there's a moment where we start we've seeing these like little heat blips like divide and keep like turning into more and more mm-hmm. or did i make that up is that oh no, no no i think you're right <laughs> it's, um, it's two scripts i know i hear you <laughs> um but uh and then little bear and gates finally chase they kind of get in a whole thing where they're fighting like like the coyote comes and takes over a bunch of coyotes, so there's only like a thing coyote army right. that they have to contend with, and they end up chasing it underground. And this is when it's revealed, both to them and like on the government side, someone figures out that this whole area had been a bunch of like nuclear missile silos underground that had been decommissioned, and the missiles I think were taken away. But it's just right. all these empty silos, and they discover that the things have been building these like little four foot in diameter flying saucers that they're going to launch out of all the silos to who knows where what their greatest plan is. Um, and there's a reason why they're so small, which is great too. <laughs> If um, you want to get into, yeah, yeah, just go for it. Oh yeah, because um, eventually all their bodies fall and their heads um, come come off of the bodies and the and they sprout legs and so and it makes total sense. You don't need a full thing to be in a spaceship. All you really need is the head and its little <laughs> arms to yeah. fly it. And I thought that was pretty incredible. That that, that was uh, something that that Frank had really pushed for because I mean it, that, like the most. I mean, to me, the most iconic version of the monster is the head. The you know, spider the, the, head. The spider yes. head, right? And, like, how... Because I I'd really was, like, I tried to, like, steer away from things we'd seen before, seen mm-hmm. it do before, um, and, and, you know, create new monsters. Like, why would it revert to, like, something it's done before? But there's something that's so, like, as a fan, so great about that image you just you want to see it again if you have the opportunity to see it again why would you mm-hmm. not want to see it again and why wouldn't you want to see hundreds of severed heads yes. with spider legs yeah. you know <laughs> and that was i think one of the kookiest things the, the, the things that are in this that didn't happen i think that's the one i missed the most was like dozens of severed heads with spider legs crawling into spaceships <laughs> it's just so nuts i would have loved to have seen it uh, me too plus it's like so 50 sci-fi right but you know <laughs> yeah so it, and it makes sense because, you know, once they separate from each other, you know, it's like those other masses are still the thing, but, and it's still, the head itself is still another part of the thing, so. Well, and you're able to, like, you're kind of able to weave that in to the story, too, because as we kind of alluded to before, the idea that when, so basically they find out the that it has, in fact, adapted to the blood test. Right. Because that's another twi- twist was that Avery, Pritchard's boss, 
they give him the he'd pass the blood test. So, but Pritchard framed him so thoroughly they now doubt the blood test. But then it turns out Avery was in fact a <laughs> thing the whole time, and he's the one who kills Pritchard. Um, but they're able to take from something Little Bear says from when he had witnessed the coyote on the electric fence that it's like, oh, maybe it still can't withstand an electric charge, and that's why it hates getting defibrillated. Defib- right. Defibrillated. Yeah. Tongue twister. Um, and so there's a cool scene where uh, Blackburn and Lukanov have a thing strapped to a table and they keep shocking it. And the longer they shock it, the more it regresses. So it regresses back through to the coyote and to uh, Vitsenko or whatever his name was, the Russian guy from the plane. But then I thought it would have been interesting how you were going to do it, if it was just going to be approximations or you we were actually going to try to get some of the actors from the first thing. It starts regressing back through the people it had taken over in the original movie. Yeah, that would have been fun. I don't know whether that would have been a, a Greg thing, you know, where you where, yeah. where you where you have the, the sculpts of what, of what those faces were or how, how we would ever get the likeness rights or whatever. Back, like, you know, we, we just, we went for the sort of the <laughs> ideal version uh, and we would have loved to, it seems like a cool place to, to do a little of, you know, hat tip to the original. Yeah, and I think it keeps going and it even reverts back to aliens we've never seen. Right. Like the alien that had been piloting the ship and kind of, yeah, as Steve was saying, getting the idea of where some of these like spidery and more insectoid things are coming from. Um, and and I also like the fact that every time it takes someone over, like it's subconscious, everything it knows now adapts into the thing. So it's right. so intelligent at this point. And that's why it could build so many spaceships. Oh, right. I was, I was going to make a note you of that know? too that I thought <laughs> yeah. was cool uh, that someone even points that out. This is also basically the smartest thing in the universe probably because it's absorbed the knowledge of how many who knows how many different species of Mm -hmm. intelligent creatures Uh, and then there's also a part where it reverts back to uh, Alina which was Lukanov's wife that he had to kill in the movie and it's kind of a rare moment now where they're communicating they have it like trapped in this room I think is what's going on and they're actually talking to the thing and the thing saying like I don't know why you are so afraid of it it wants peace when all the creatures on earth are one how could there be anything but peace uh, it's like peace no death and it's like death is an illusion Indiv- individual individuality is a dream I see it now we're all connected um, it's an interesting moment now you're really communicating with this thing that we know is intelligent but Unless it's pretending to be someone, usually all we've seen of it is when it's revealed, it just goes like, right. and then freaks out and <laughs> right. turns into a blob and tries to get out of the room. Well, it, it seemed like a chance to like, it, it's it's stuck in this room. It's been forced into f- shapes it doesn't want to be in by mm-hmm. the electric shocks. Mm-hmm. And there's just sort of no point. You know, we can have masks off conversation now because I I you I know you know I'm not your dead wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also you have it, it's kind of revealed in here where uh they they're kind of able to even I think communicate with the alien that it had been the alien whose ship had crashed and revealing that that 
like they crashed it on purpose. It's much like our characters are about to nuke themselves is once they realize it had gotten out of whatever cell they'd had it in and was taking over their ship. They just took a nose dive into Earth on purpose because there's no humans yet. Right. Like it was so long ago that they were like, mm. ah, an uninhabited planet. Right. It'll be safe here. Little did they know. Um Oh, you're talking to the thing, and it's like, what do you want? And it just says, like, live, 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 live over and over again. And it's like, what do you want of us? Die, die, die. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, the, it's all kind of building up to, like, you know, the nukes on the way to take out the town. Can they get out in time? And more importantly, can they stop all the flying saucers from getting out because there's I mean there's like it seems like there's like hundreds of them that right. it's built it's every, underground everybody that's gone missing has got their own little flying spaceship um mm-hmm. and uh, I think in good cryptic fashion it's like they win they've basically managed to destroy all the flying saucers but one of our characters thinks they maybe see just one get away uh, before the nuke goes off right so this town still gets nuked <laughs> oh yeah. yeah there's no way around that um, oh, but there was a great scene right before it gets nuked where the sef- there's like out of over 300, only 17 survivors and they're and they're put into two separate groups. And You're talking about the, the humans. Yeah. 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 Were you going to talk about that? No, scene? no, go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah. So the, the last remaining survivors of the town, uh, they're separated into two groups and one group um Thing one group who you kind of suspect are okay or crying and everything you think they're about to get like flame thrown, uh, torch, but instead it turns on the other people. Well, it's like and they're you it's them. like they're taking them out of the yeah. holding cell, like they're yeah. gonna take them outside and shoot them all. Right. But then right. once they get them outside, the guys just turn around and flame throw the people who'd been inside. Which Another good fake out. Exactly, which I did not see coming. Also. <laughs> Which I say is a lot of stuff you don't see coming in here. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was, that was what was so surprised. I mean, not surprised. That's what I loved about the script is because usually I could see things coming a mile away. But with this one, it was just always like, whoa, it was that was that's what's so good about the script. It's always surprising you, you know, Well, because it, it, it's because the original movie, even though technically you'd say it's an outbreak movie, right. mm-hmm. but it's still more in the just like paranoia, who can you trust? But this blows it up to both. There is a paranoia mm-hmm. you can trust, but it really is kind of a classic, uh, a plague movie, basically. Right. We're just like, oh no, how do we contain all of this? Well, and a, there was a lot of, I mean, one of the hardest things to do was to sort of be surprising. Because mm-hmm. again, I was trying to be like, I was trying to imagine myself watching it. What would trick me? Because what's what's fun about that first movie is is not knowing where it is and then realizing, oh, you know, putting the pieces together after the fact and mm-hmm. and creating those sort of, you know, I think one of the th- things that helped was having the first movie. I think sometimes you read, like certainly with like Rafferty, you read Rafferty in the context of, Oh, I saw the first movie, and this, and 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 so you begin to suspect him because it's using the iconography from that first movie. But then you're able to, because you're sort of led down this path of this false expectation, able to like, yeah, come up with some twists to it anyway. Mm-hmm. And did you guys ever get like even just amongst yourselves? Because you said in the last episode, we kind of talked about that sci-fi was maybe thinking like, oh, if this is a big hit, 
maybe we can do a series or maybe another mini series. Who knows? Did you ever even get far enough to kind of brainstorming what that might look like? Only in the like the you know most basic sense, <clears throat> which was you know the idea was the very end of this is they missed one right, and, yeah. and that the very end of the of the the mini series was going to be it's out there, and the concept like again this is not even really a pitch, but the, our idea was just the series is the 27,000 hours it yeah. takes for the earth to be destroyed. And, and, <laughs> oh, wow. and so it just, there, there, there was no coming back from it. It is just the society sort of devolving as things are taking over. So you start off with a sort of more invasion of the body snatchers idea where you have sort of normal society and people are things in society, but then it's escalating to the point where you realize that they're more them than us. Yeah, because you have it ending in New York. Uh, the one does get away and escapes to New York, which is right. a great, um, just like the worst place for it to be. <laughs> yeah, wait, it's, it's one of the characters, isn't it? Oh, Little Bear. It's Little Bear. Yeah. Um, but um, to, to close out the thing, I was just going to say is just, um, um, and then it was like a year later because your, your last, the last draft of Night 2, well, the first draft of Night 2 was dated October 7th. 2005 and then November 17th 2006 was when they Universal announced that they were going to remake John Carpenter's The Thing so I guess right. was it so when, when did you find out about the remake or was that the the final straw I mean that was it, what happened that was sort of going on behind the scenes really while I was writing it too and and I don't know exactly all all the stories behind what went on but basically what I got wind of whether it's accurate or not was basically that you had there was a uh, two sides of universal you have the theatrical and tv Mm -hmm. and they were both sort of there was a tug of war over the rights whereas because sci-fi wanted to do their thing universal theatrical wanted to do their thing um and like i was saying previously it's it's at that time those horror ips were being remade like the the thing to do with that was obviously remake it because that was mm-hmm. you know where the genre was at that time that was that was what everybody was doing um and so i you know theatrical side sort of won out on that and they wound up making the prequel i mean to, to me like i i you know the thing i liked about the prequel was you know they went back in time and we went forward so there was really no reason why they yeah. couldn't, couldn't both coexist yeah. I don't, you know to, to me it was you know why why not do both why do we have to choose yeah uh but that was what they wound up doing i, I hope they could i wish they could do something with this novelization comp it's something because it's so good and that's I the thing definitely see it being a comic yeah like dark horse comic so, or something it, your script is it's it's i mean like i said like it jolted me out of my spolt scripts like gave me like I read lots of scripts and I never have reactions like that reading stuff oh, before cool. so well then you've got so then after this a few more unmade movies that I'm curious about one I don't I don't even know if this will be interesting to the audience I just <laughs> have my own personal curiosity because years later it was brought to my writing partner and I which was Last Man Standing which was the most oh, impressive yeah. look book I've ever seen. I assumed it existed, but we couldn't wrap our heads around it. I was curious what you were going to do with it. It was hard. No, I mean, uh, did you write a script for that? Mm -hmm. Or yeah, Yeah, I I I wrote a script for it. Um, I feel like it was sort of that book was sort of ahead of its time. Like I think you could probably do it now because it's so out there. You know, and describe for the audience, it was for a lookbook is just like like 
the guys who did Stranger Things famously sold it, and they just had a whole book full of like images, basically of what the show would even look like, right? And how it was an homage to all these things. And this Last Man Standing was like, I don't even. It was it was the artwork was so good, and there were so many pages, and this guy basically just made up like fifty characters, but there wasn't even that much like story. That was the part where we couldn't wrap our head around right. is it felt like when you would play like a street fighter two or something and you'd get the booklet <laughs> with the video game and it just listed all the characters you could choose. <laughs> it kind of had that vibe to it. He did. I thought the book was amazing. I mean, it's more like an art, but it's a coffee table yeah. art book really. And, it, but his concept was, you know, this world that existed in his head and it was so well realized, it felt like it should be a movie, you know, but yeah. it's, it, it's, it's, you know, it's so big, you have to find like the sliver of it to decide to tell. I think that was part of we promised which sliver was because right. it was like it, every character had these super detailed backstories that spanned like decades and <laughs> right. stuff. So it's like, well, where does the story fit in here? Uh, but maybe moving on to things. Uh, people are more aware of. Very intrigued by the fact that you were uh, working on a Something Wicked This Way Comes movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Seth Graham Smith and I were were uh, doing that at Disney. Uh, he was going to direct it. He was right? going to direct it. Yeah, um, and that was a blast because that's one of my. I mean, I love Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury, Bradbury is my favorite author, and and to get in there and, and have a chance to do that was cool. I um, and that. That is probably a right situation. I don't even know if they ever actually had or closed right. everything. Mm. I mean, it's one of those things where nobody can make it without Disney, and yeah. you know. But so, um, and I, I don't know if they're they're doing that. And and I don't also know. You know, this it it was um, one of our takes on it was. I think uh, Stranger Things has probably let the air out of it a little, a little bit be- yeah. because our take on it was. To move it forward in time to the 80s, mm-hmm. you know, and so to so basically be because there was so much nostalgia to it to make the movie take place in an area that is nostalgic to modern audiences as, a, as opposed to nostalgic to the audience when the book came out. Yeah. Yeah. Was it otherwise basically just the story from the yeah. book? Yeah. It was, it, was, it was faithful as we could be. Cool. I also saw that you you were attached at one point to Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, I'm not sure is that even is that still going on or there is a new incarnation of it uh, okay. that's happening at Paramount, uh, but it's not based on my script or anything that I did with it. What, what was your? I mean, were you dealing with the RPG from the 80s? Mm-hmm. Or? Yeah, no, we went back to like very old school, you know, take on Dungeons and Dragons. But I mean, to to me, my my pitch for Dungeons and Dragons was. Um, what if Gandalf had gotten to Hobbiton and Frodo's leg was broken and he had to give the ring to Captain Jack Sparrow? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's a completely different movie, but mm-hmm. with those those fantasy trappings, I really wanted to see a really fun fantasy movie. That, that, that or, or, or A lot of the, or, like, the fantasy stuff, I, I love it, but there's, it's very serious. It's very, it takes itself very mm-hmm. seriously. It's, it's very somber, very, you know, um, wanting to convince you of its, you know, its, its uh, seriousness. Where mm-hmm. it, could it be fun to maybe just throw Indiana Jones into, you know, that kind of world? Uh, having watched the Warcraft movie, I would say yes. Yeah. <laughs> it would be fun to have uh, a more rollicking, swashbuckle, swashbuckling version. Oh, you go. 
Oh, I was going to bring up the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, also kind yes. of taking a cue from Return of the Thing a little bit, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah for sure. Were you able to recycle ideas from from Return of I the Thing I managed to avoid it. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> because because there, there's, I mean, we, we definitely, the, the body horror still exists in that, and hopefully we'll get to do that one of these days. But, um, you know, that that's... You know, you you don't have the sort of thing outs. You don't have the sort of spectacular explosions of craziness in terms of you know what can come out of a person. It's just that the person that you love sitting next to you might not actually be them. Yeah, <laughs> and you can't fall asleep around them. And I think we also saw that you. I don't know if you were just attached to it or you actually wrote a script for another Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm still attached. Okay, it's so that's something still that's kinda... still okay. you know, going on. I mean, right now New Line's having a lot of success horror wise with with the Conjuring universe, so that's we're sort of doing that right now. But the Can I, you give I mean, us a tease of it at all? Not really, because I'm not sure where we're gonna wind up going with it. Okay. You know, I mean to I would love to see, you know, just another Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Just like don't try to remake it don't spin off from your remake and 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 do you know yeah nightmare on street elm street seven no. um we'll see what happens yeah i saw one rumor it wasn't a rumor it was just people were hoping kevin or i heard kevin bacon's name thrown around for freddy krueger at I, one point i like, saw that too we never got far enough to even <laughs> gotcha to, to start huh. speculating about that i so. love kevin bacon but uh what one really quick thing going off of Dungeons and Dragons uh, was Clash of the Titans three. Um, oh yeah. So because I, I like your labyrinth scene in part two a lot. What was Clash three was going to be? I mean, I'm bummed that didn't happen to be honest. Because <laughs> I, I like I don't know. I I dug what you did with with Rash with Wrath of the Titans. So what was Clash three going to be like? Uh, Dan and I, Dan Mazo, who's my partner on Wrath of the Titans. Um, Again, this is nothing that we, we didn't get beyond sort of like a, a story stage on it. Um, mm. But uh, weirdly, I guess it's sort of a full circle. It was going to uh, take place on Atlantis. There was going to there it was going to there was, there was going to be an adventure on Atlantis, and it's going to sink while we're on it. And and we you know it was just Perseus in Atlantis kind of story. Oh, right on. Yeah, because I mean that was what I was so excited about was we had Clash of the Titans, and then we had the remake. But then I was I was more excited about the sequels to come out of the remake than anything. Because... Yeah, well, that was, that was the time when I was doing The Thing and uh, Wrath of the Titans. Like, my career was exclusively sequels to remakes. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. It's an interesting niche to have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, is there any chance Return of the Thing could somehow resurface in any form? You know, I, I talked to Frank about it all periodically and because he's just all this time later still very passionate about it and 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 every once in a while we'll we'll converse about it and he's out there you know pushing to have something happen with it one of these days you know so it, it's i know there Come are on netflix are... <laughs> seriously <laughs> like take this script and make it uh oh, wait one more thing lake mungo uh, back in 2009, you were attached to for a second. Yeah, yeah no, I wrote a, a script for that. It was a, a, a basically it was it was a curious thing. I've never come across this before or, or since. But it was Lake Mungo was an Australian found footage horror movie mm-hmm. that um, they were going to remake, not as found footage. 
right? To, to like <laughs> yeah. to to take that story and to tell it in a conventional way. Um, so that was that was curious. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. It's also just funny that they'd need to remake an English. It's language. an English yeah, language movie. Audiences can't <laughs> listen to the Australian <laughs> accent. Yeah, it, it was it was it was strange. I mean, it was a fun project to work on, but it was it was. I'd never done that sort of adaptation before where the movie already exists and it's in English and we could all watch it and it came yeah. out last year. <laughs> yeah, because when I read about it, I was like, wasn't that movie in English? And then I didn't realize it was Australian until after. It was after. like the original Mad Max when yeah. they dubbed over Mel Gibson's voice because, again, <laughs> audiences couldn't handle an Australian accent. Um, well, let's maybe wrap things up by talking about what do you have coming up? that people are can expect to see Conjuring 3, right? Conjuring 3 comes out uh, September 2020. Right. Um, and then um, Aquaman 2 I'm working on now. We'll we'll see if I'm still working on it three years from now when it comes out. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but right now I'm working on it. Um, I think that's, uh, I forget when it's coming out it's so far in the future. So, but I think uh, that's, I'm doing that. And then, um, Alex Aja and I are working on a project for Quibi, uh, adapting a Japanese horror manga that I'm a big fan of. Oh, nice. And that's the weird, like, small bite format yes. service? Yes, Quick Bite, right? Quick Bite, it's yeah. called. Yeah, or, well, it's Quibi, which is short for, qui- for Quick Bites, yeah. Um, how will that work, really? I've, have the, you ever even attempted to do something I in never, a format like you that? Know I never had, and I was really freaked out by it when it was first proposed to me, but... Then they sort of, you know, we sat down with them and the idea was to have three weeks, um, five days a week, you have a 10 minute segment. And when it was brought to me like that, I was like, well, that's a movie, right? That's 150 minutes. And if you're not having something interesting happen to cliffhanger every 10 minutes in your film script, you probably have a problem anyway. Yeah. Like that's, I can do that. I know how to do that. It, it, It seemed like a strange thing until I sort of looked at it as it's, you know, it's a, you have a two and a half hour movie that gets hmm. delivered to your phone in 10 minute segments. <laughs> yeah, trip. Um, well, thank you so much for stopping by. Oh, thank Do you, you want to plug your social media again? Oh, I'm at Brave Carrot on Twitter. And that's all I have. Um, and you can find Steve and I on all the socials and you can find Best Movies Never Made on Instagram and on Twitter at Never Made Film. Um, I know there's usually not a reason to follow a podcast on social media, but we do post a lot of pictures like concept art when we can find it from all these wonderful never made films um thanks for joining us and if you're a fan of the podcast you may want to check out electric surge's other podcasts like the 430 movie every friday in which a group of writers and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies and inglorious trexperts the only podcast for star trek fans with a life available every saturday wherever you listen to podcasts also a very special thanks to bill ritter and everyone here at electric surge network including our producers dean devlin and mark a altman so until next time this is Steven Scarlato and I'm Josh Miller saying we won't see you at the movies. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.